When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the temple authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have 
life in his name. There are certain passages that come up on a yearly basis, and this is, this is one of them. And I'm quite sure that I've probably preached this text more than any other. The first few times I preached it, I felt like it was my job to come to Thomas's defense. I had heard, I had heard too many sermons about doubting Thomas's pastors using him as a negative example. Don't be like Thomas. Don't doubt. Uh, but it seems to me that Thomas's doubts are warranted, especially if you assume he was there on Friday. If he was among those who had to pry the, the corpse of his close friend off the cross, wash the bloody mess off him, and lay him in a grave, that had to have been traumatic. And few things are as unhelpful to a trauma survivor as dismissing their experience. And that's what that wild-eyed tale of resurrection must have sounded like. It must sound like gaslighting. Rather than allowing Thomas to come to terms with his grief and loss, they're acting as if it never happened. So I have sympathy for Thomas. In fact, I have sympathy for anyone who has doubts. The people who want to, who want to believe but find it all too much. After all, we're not just claiming that Jesus was nearly dead or dead-ish. He was dead. Uh, a friend, uh, not a close friend, but someone I, I knew uh, died recently. And he, you know, he felt this heart attack coming on. He, he called the ambulance and before he collapsed and then uh, you know, he's brought to the hospital an hour later and for a while they, they, they were able to start the heart, heart up but his brain had been without oxygen and there was this whole question of whether, whether he, you know, we, he would have any of his mental faculties, you know, whether there was any coming back and in the end there wasn't. That's after an hour. You know, Jesus was dead Friday, Saturday. And we claim that he wasn't just revived. We claim that he was resurrected. We claim that he didn't just have his faculties restored, but that he's transformed. He's the same Jesus. You know, our, our passage clearly emphasizes the wounds, the fact that it's the same body, but Jesus is different, too, after the resurrection. Pre-Easter Jesus, for example, he would enter rooms by way of a door. After Easter, he doesn't need to do that. He can just show up. Uh, so you and I may believe that it is true, that that actually happened, that the, the Gospels, what they are describing is a historical event. But when we say that, none of us can say that based on some other experience. We can't say, oh, I believe in the resurrection. Yeah, my buddy Carl, he resurrected. No, none of that, you know, there that is, of the billions of people that have lived uh, on this earth and ceased to exist on this earth, only one resurrected. Jesus is the only one who pulled that off. Which leads me to what I believe this passage is really about. 
It is a passage about doubting and believing, but the real issue is not Thomas's doubts or his belief. That's not who this story is primarily concerned with. The person this passage is primarily concerned with is you and me. When Thomas is confronted by the reality of resurrection, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Blessed are those who've never had the opportunity to be in the same room with the one exception to the natural course of things. And still, they manage to believe in that exception. People like you and people like me. In case we fail to grasp this point, John sort of underscores it. He says, now Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Now, you may think, well, yeah, all right, believing is not easy, but you know what? The fact is, People believe all kinds of strange things. You know, some weeks ago I mentioned that millions of people are, have this belief that the political and Hollywood elites traffic children and cannibalize them in satanic rituals. Uh, the pandemic gave rise to lots of strange uh, and crazy ideas that people believed about where it came from and how to treat it. Um, Nevada had to make a law that, look, you can't buy this anti-parasitic anti horse medicine unless you have a horse, right? They, they mean, look, people were trying to treat their COVID with it. Anyway, everyone likes to think that what they believe, they believe because of the evidence, because logic supports it, but you know, the truth is, logic and reason is often secondary, regardless of what we believe. By and large, what we believe, what we accept as true addresses some underlying need we have. If it makes us feel better about ourselves or the world around us, well, we'll believe just about anything. And Thomas suspects that that's what's going on here, right? The disciples just want to believe, not him. He wants to see the body. He wants to see the wounds. Otherwise, count them out. Now, you and I are not in a position where we have that luxury to make those sorts of, uh, establish those kinds of conditions. You know, we can't say, well, I'll believe if I see this. So then well, why do we believe? And there are a host of answers to that question. Um, but it's probably true that part of the reason we believe is we need to believe it, that there's some underlying uh, need we have that make, enables us to believe. All right? it's, I mean, there's no shame in that, right? But it can't be just that. There has to be more to it. I mean, there, and there are good, there are people who spend a good amount of time making the case for believing based on reason, based on evidence, based on, and I, you know, there's lots of uh, arguments that are made. I think probably the one I find most compelling is the change we see in the disciples. Um, they are these sort of working class 
guys with limited, uh, you know, they're not, they're not powerful. They're not, they, they want strings to pull to get their way. I mean, they're just, and, and, and they're bumbling a lot of times, right? They get it wrong over and over again. And they, and they, they are cowardly when, they, when courage is needed. And then resurrection happens. And these guys are unstoppable, right? Um, you know, if they were just making this up to feel better, you know, when they're threatened with imprisonment, when they're threatened with beatings, when they're threatened with execution, you might think, okay, 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 okay. We made it up. It's not true. None of them do that. That's, I mean, it's a powerful change. What would explain such a change except that they had witnessed resurrection? I find that pretty compelling. But I also say this, I don't congratulate myself because I, I believe. Uh, I don't th- I'm not saying that that fulfills. Well, look, I fulfilled what John is looking for. I mean, it's certainly important to believe in the resurrection as a historical reality, as a, as a literal fact, but that's not the extent of what it means to believe. That's just the beginning of what it means to believe. When John states that these were written so that you may believe, he's wanting us to understand that resurrection changes things. We may not be able to see the resurrected Jesus, but we need to see everything differently in light of the resurrected Jesus. And that is the hard part. That's where doubts creep in. Certainly they do for me. Uh, A little less than a year ago, we first started kicking around this idea of a, of a worship grant. And, you know, back when I did campus ministry in Ann Arbor, we, we applied, I, I thought it was just two, but actually it was three. We applied for three grants, so I, and I directed those projects. And, and as I was, we were talking about this proposal, I was like, oh, this, this is so much better than that proposal. Uh, than those proposals, so I was excited about that. And then, you know, this, this organization that funds these projects, is, it's the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship. The director of the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship, he attends my folks' church. I took a seminary class with him. One of our closest friends, uh, family friends, is a uh, senior research fellow there. Uh, and it, it hosts this great conference every year called the Worship Symposium. And I gave two seminars there on a couple occasions. And in one year, they invited myself and my colleague to to put on a a worship service with these uh, two uh, professors, one at Western Seminary and one at uh, the University of Edinburgh in in, in Scotland. as part of the conference. Oh, such an honor. I was sort of blown away. And and in that month before the conference, you know, we spent hours going back and forth over email, discussing ideas, presenting and revising our efforts. And by the time we actually met at the conference, it was like, oh, we're old friends. It was, and, it, we, and then we had to leave the service twice over the course of the, 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 the weekend. It's a long weekend. Uh, and the first time we left the service, uh, it didn't go so well, but we got together and we revised, came up with the ideas and, and uh, we made adjustments and I remember as we were sitting there and as the space started to fill with a few hundred conference goers, I'm a little nervous, but that second time, not only did it go, go well, things
things happened in that service that couldn't have anticipated. The whole thing took on this new depth, and people came away deeply moved from that thing. And, and, and honestly, I think vocationally speaking, uh, probably one of my proudest moments was to have been a part of that. Now, while the Institute works with churches from a wide range of denominations, um, as you may know, it is associated with my former denomination, the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, and, and maybe, I don't know how much of this I've talked about, but I, you know, I made a good deal of effort trying to reconcile with my former church. And it became clear that all those efforts were making things worse, and so I just had to give up on it. And then I thought, well, maybe we could work some things out with, with the denomination as a whole, and there really wasn't a way to do that, and so that there, was, there just wasn't anything to be done. And I really hadn't thought about this when I applied for the grant, but it was like this, this grant was sort of the first opportunity for me to reconnect in some capacity with my old denomination. Now, I want to be clear, I, don't, I have no desire to serve in the Christian Reformed Church anymore, but I, I, I want it to be okay. Want it to be okay. Anyway, and I hadn't really even thought about that fact until a week and a half ago, on Monday, Thursday, received the email saying that a project was not chosen for funding. I, I think I, I was confident enough that they were accepted that I didn't even I didn't even consider how rejection would feel and what it would drudge up for me. Again, I, didn't, I don't want to go back to my old denomination, but I, I, again, I wanted things, it, it, this might have been, an, all I wanted was something that says things are okay. I, all I wanted was a little closure. Well, a little closure and $16,000 <laughs> to fund our project. Um, on Monday, I talked with Jen about feeling rejected. And, and she responded in ways that suggested to me that she didn't fully grasp how significant that was. So I, I thought I would clarify, and I made that effort. And again, response was a little, lack, a, a little, a little lacking, in my opinion. Uh, and, and at that point, I kind of blew up. I did it once okay. I'm, why am I getting so emotional this time? And we barely spoke for the next few days. And the timing of that was not great. After all, in there, those included days that Jen had to take her mom to the emergency room. It was included the day that her good friend's mom died, uh, you know, among other stuff going on. It, there were some opportunities there for me to be supportive, but that wasn't happening because my feelings were hurt. And, you know, I didn't have time to be supportive because I had something like, oh, I got I to gotta come up with a sermon. Uh, and I can't be bothered with that one. I got to reflect on big questions like, what does, it mean, what does it mean to believe in resurrection? And I asked myself that question, and suddenly it hits me. Whatever, whatever else it means, it means this. That forgiving and being forgiven opens up new worlds. It's how the kingdom of God is getting in. Uh, and, I, and in that moment, I am illustrating how difficult that is to believe. I mean, I don't, I don't mean that I suddenly had doubts about 
whether the, the resurrection is a historical fact. I'm having doubts about whether resurrection matters, whether it changes things, because I'm still occupying a world where resentment and regret and hurt feelings still call the shots. In that world, what makes sense is wet, wallowing in self-pity and sleeping on the couch. Uh, but that doesn't make for a very good sermon illustration. So I had to make some effort. And the good news is I'm married to Jen. And she'll work with some, some effort. Some effort with her is enough to make resurrection plausible again. Some effort starts to give a glimpse into that new world that was opened up on that Easter morning so long ago. And look, I'm not telling you this because I think it's a profound illustration of what it means to believe in Easter. Like this whole business with the grant and our conflict was such a big deal. There are far bigger deals. Some of you are going through far bigger deals. What I've just described is really just sort of the stuff of life, right? Basic messiness of life. When Thomas insists on seeing, on touching those wounds, he is thinking about those things that testify to Jesus' horrible death. Life at its most messy. However, when he's eventually confronted by those wounds, they testify to something else entirely. They are transformed. They speak of victory over death and mess. They bear witness to life eternal. And we don't have the advantage of seeing that, seeing those wounds. But as a result of the basic messiness of life, we do have our own wounds and we can see them. What does it mean to believe in resurrection? Whatever else it means, it means this, that forgiving and being forgiven opens up new worlds. It's how the kingdom of God is getting in. It's how our wounds are transformed. They, like Jesus' own wounds, speak of victory over death and mess. They bear witness to life life eternal. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.